Let's remain standing as we pray. Lord God, you are the giver of all of the good gifts that are in our lives. So please take these, our financial offerings, and take the lives that they reflect in worship to you, the one who is the generous God and who enables us to be your generous people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. Famous last words. The final words spoken before someone dies can vary from the sublime to the ridiculous. One famous general in the American Civil War was deploying his men to face the enemy, face their enemy. And seeking to bring courage to his men in the line of enemy fire, he stood up and shouted, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance which were his last words, as not only could they hit elephants, they could hit him, and they killed him with a bullet. Spike Milligan's gravestone reads, when it's translated into English, it reads, I told you I was ill. Famous last words. Or more seriously, last words can, can give us a glimpse into what mattered most in the life of another. And as we continue in this letter to a letter called to Timothy, if you can turn back now there now, that'd be very helpful, page 1195. As we look at this letter, we're seeing what mattered most to the Apostle Paul as he neared the end of his life. And in his farewell message, he focused on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And we're invited into Paul's dark, damp, lonely prison cell. To witness him actually not being downhearted by old age and difficult circumstances. But we find in that cell a man devoted to God and with a focus on the future of the church. And as I said last week, we'll we'll discover throughout this letter that the theme of suffering is never very far away. It's always near the surface in 2 Timothy and it rises, it comes to the fore. In verse 8. Verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. At the 7 p.m. service a few weeks ago, we had a speaker from Open Doors. Open Doors are one of the organizations that works amongst suffering Christians across the world. And they share that over 360 million Christians worldwide suffer persecution and discrimination. 360 million. And the map that's on the screen shows the top uh, 50 countries, uh, well, the top countries where following Jesus can result in the most persecution. And they produce a list of 50 countries uh, called the World Watch List, which has just been updated, and you can find that on their website. Now, in the UK, we're not having such 
uh, acute experiences of suffering. But again, as we've been learning throughout 1 Peter in the 7 p.m. series this year, we are, we are now starting to feel much more like exiles. In the UK and some other Western countries, Christianity is no longer an option to be tolerated. It's a problem, even a danger. Sometimes Christians are no longer seen as the good guys, but the bad guys. And there's a growing general sense that to be a Bible-believing Christian in Britain today is something that at the very least doesn't fit easily in our schools, in our workplaces, in our clubs, and even in our families. Not always, but there is sometimes a sense of that. And it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel to try to avoid suffering. And of course, that's our natural tendency to, to choose the easy option. If you remember in the Gospels that the iron-willed, sword-wielding disciple Peter, he had declared that he was ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus. But it wasn't long before even he was ashamed to even admit that he knew Jesus. And there's always the temptation to succumb to being ashamed of the Gospel and to avoid suffering. But God hasn't called us to an easy life. We've been saved and called, did you see it in those verses, to not an easy life, but a holy life. In God's purposes and in his grace. And as one observer put it, there are a number of emphases in the contemporary church that continue to distort its life. One has to do with the erroneous idea that the Christian life is basically a fair weather experience. We need to adjust our expectations that suffering for following Jesus is part of the package. Our Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell helpfully write... To choose to suffer means there is something very wrong, means that there is something wrong. But to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He or she chooses God's will, as Paul did, whether it means suffering or not. And God gives us the power to, that's needed in the midst of suffering for the gospel, if that is what we experience. And one of the ways that he does that is by drawing other people alongside us. Suffering is never pleasurable, but it can be eased by the company of those undergoing a similar thing. And Paul's hand reaches out, inviting Timothy and inviting us to join him in suffering for the gospel. And what can possibly motivate and sustain us to suffer for for the gospel? Well, this call to suffer for the gospel is followed by a reminder of the gospel that thrills our hearts, that brings comfort. As we see the light through the gospel, uh, let me read verse nine again and 10. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. 
Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Just read those words and imagine Paul sitting in his prison cell, dark, alone, cold, facing death, and yet he can write, verse 10, that Christ has broken the power of death and brought life. In just these few verses, there are immense truths compressed, compacted into just a few short, uh, few short verses and then are ready to expl- expand in the minds and the hearts of believers. Now, God had a plan from the beginning of time, and in Christ, the floodlights, that's what the picture is, I don't know if you can tell, the floodlights came on, on God's plan from the beginning of time in Christ, enabling us to see Christ, his plans for the world, and our part in them. And so, in response to the light from the glorious gospel, come significant responsibilities. There were responsibilities for Paul, as one of the 12 apostles commissioned by Christ, and there were responsibilities for Timothy, and so too there are responsibilities for us today. And if you wonder, I've, I've got four points this morning. We've done two already. I do slow down now, okay, just to set your expectations. It's not going to be an early finish. <laughs> we're, we're halfway through my points, but not through the sermon. Verse 11, okay. And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This good news of Jesus had transformed Paul's life, if you know anything of his life story. And the sharing of this good news became his focus for the rest of his life. Paul was an appointed apostle, one of the original apostles. He was appointed a herald and a teacher. And he makes it clear that that in itself is the reason for the suffering that he was experiencing. It wasn't some kind of mistake. It wasn't a malfunction. Suffering was part of the package. The Apostle Paul and the authentic gospel message that he heralded and taught had plenty in the first century, plenty of opponents and critics as, he does, as it does today. And we'll meet some of those first century opponents as we go on in the letter. And to the opponents, it must have seemed that the situation Paul was in, it must have seemed that he was so futile, so pathetic, Alone, imprisoned, abandoned. Wasn't that in itself proof enough that God had abandoned Paul? God wasn't with Paul. Wasn't the fact that he was in prison under so much duress, wasn't that proof in itself that the message Paul preached must be faulty? Some of Paul's opponents preached that that they were experiencing a life where all troubles had evaporated. Well, that's a false gospel. And today, those preachers who promise health and wealth today 
are preaching a false gospel. Following Jesus does not mean that our troubles evaporate in this life. If you hear teaching like that, that is a false gospel. Following Jesus means following Jesus on the path that he took. The path of suffering and then glory. And so therefore Paul is able to say as he's alone in a dark cell, forgotten, cast off, abandoned, he's able to say this is why I'm suffering as I am. Because I'm following Jesus. I'm on the path that he took. I'm not ashamed because I know the one whom I have believed. And let's just linger there for a moment. Because this is important for us pastorally. Note that Paul doesn't refer just to what he has believed. He does, but it's not just that. He speaks of the one in whom he has believed. You see, we don't, if I can put it like this, we don't just believe in a what. We believe in a who, a person. And we can trust that person. Even when doubt or discouragement clouds our understanding and our vision, we can trust the person of Christ. We can trust his goodness, his character, his understanding. When we become a Christian, we're not merely signing up to a set of abstract principles. We're following a person, and we can trust him, and we can know him. Paul experienced suffering in life, but he had security in death. And he sets an example for Timothy and for us. I'd imagine that Paul's opponents probably thought that Paul's message would die with him in the prison cell. Yet Paul was optimistic as he looked to the future of the church well beyond his own life. He knew that God was sovereign and therefore Paul knew that he could pass on the gospel message. Now raise your hand if you enjoy watching the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or the equivalent or any form of athletics. Okay, great, a decent number. Great. I actually don't, to be honest. But anyway, uh, if, if I ever do, then the, what I want to watch is the relay sprint races. Tremendous speeds as the fastest people on earth compete in team races. However, the key is not how fast each individual is. The key moments in the race are the handovers of the baton. That is where the races are won or lost. The handover makes the difference between a gold medal, gold medals, and disqualification. And these handovers are key for generations of Christian churches too. And therefore, Timothy needed to get ready to receive the gospel baton in the midst of all the great realities that surrounded him. Some were cheering Timothy on. Others were trying to distract and discourage him. 
And so Paul says, verse 13 again, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. God, the good deposit that was entrusted to you, God, it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Those who receive the gospel message from one generation to another, we're to be stewards, not innovators. In the first century where Timothy was in Ephesus and the, the, the areas that surrounded that, there were, there were plenty of teachers, plenty of innovators who modified the message about Jesus. And in the first century, they had their appeal. The modified message took out some of the more costly aspects of following Jesus. It gave people what they wanted. It didn't call for so much of a a change, a transformation in life. Yet they were not keeping to the pattern of sound teaching. Timothy, however, was to keep to Paul's pattern. He'd been given theological parameters. There is a model, a standard, a guide not to be departed from, an authentic message to be followed. As we've called this series, The Truth We Hold. I've mentioned a few times before uh, the story, so don't stop me if you've heard it before. I've mentioned a few times before the story that uh, Catherine and I were driving to a wedding in Ipswich. It's a few years ago now. And we were, we, on the way there, we drove past the church. And this church had a large poster outside, you know, as, as various churches do. And I glanced at it as I was driving, and the poster read this. We don't change the message. The message changes us. We don't change the message. The message changes us. And I... Well, firstly, I frantically asked Catherine to write that down because I was driving, because it would come in handy at some point. (laughs) And it has. But I just think that is a, a fantastic phrase. Because that is the experience of the authentic gospel. We don't change the message. The message changes us. That is the experience of the authentic gospel. The truth we hold. And as Jonathan uh, Griffiths notes some of the implications. But even when faced with the heart-wrenching reality of losing members of the church family to the appealing-sounding message of the false teachers, Timothy must resolve to stick with the apostolic gospel. The gospel that Paul has entrusted to him, he is to pass on unchanged to the church and its leaders of the future. Even if the result is a ministry that is outwardly less impressive and seemingly less fruitful. Now that doesn't always happen, but it can do. You know, it has been said that persecution can never destroy the church. But false teaching can. If you were here last week, then you'll have heard me say that a question that I want us all to have on our hearts and, uh, and in our minds throughout the series is this. What will Cornerstone Church be like 
in 2053, in 30 years' time? What will Cornerstone Church be like? We must never just assume the gospel, but we must be actively keeping the pattern of sound teaching, actively passing on the baton. In in an almost paradoxical way, we hold the truth by passing it on. We guard the gospel by sharing it. We don't guard the gospel by burying it away or locking it up, but by unleashing the gospel, by teaching it, by living it, by delighting in it, by growing in it, by talking about it, by passing it on. That's how we guard the gospel. The truth we hold. And did you notice what else is vital from those verses? Not just theological orthodoxy, but also our attitude. Keep, as the, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Sound teaching and faith and love in Christ Jesus. And as someone once remarked, how different church history would have been if the church in succeeding generations had taken this to heart. How different the church would be today would be if this were true today. Sound teaching and faith and love in Christ Jesus. How different things would have been. And I do want to say that Peter and Valerie Lewis modeled this wonderfully, both of those things in their ministry. And as they handed on the baton eight years ago. And that's an example for us to continue to emulate. And, and I, can't, I can't tell you the difference that it makes to the culture of a church and to the experience of leadership. We are truly blessed at Cornerstone. And we must pray that that remains in the years to come. The pattern of sound teaching and faith and love in Christ Jesus. We might wonder what distortions to the gospel the church in the UK might face in the coming 30 years. Potentially many will surround issues of human identity of one form or another. More subtly perhaps, the idol of consumerism already holds many in its relentless grip. There might be other threats. There may be some form of geopolitical upheaval. And there will be other things that we might not foresee or expect. The coming 30 years may entail suffering for the gospel in a way that, that most of us haven't yet experienced. The authentic gospel has rarely been popular. 
it humbles us too much. And so we'll always be tempted to trim the gospel. But rather we're to guard it faithfully, to spread it actively and to suffer for it courageously. And look at that encouragement in verse 14. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We have the help of the Holy Spirit, God in us. You remember from last week, we've been encouraged by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we're reminded of of his help here, uh, again here. And and in, in entrusting us with the truth that we hold, actually God hasn't taken his hands off off that truth. Ultimately, it's God himself who is the guarantor of the gospel through the generations. God actually also holds us as we hold on to the truth. And that also enables us to pass on the baton ourselves, that God is sovereign. That enables us to pass on the baton. It enables us to know that we are not indispensable. You know, I, God willing, I hope to lead Cornerstone for, for many years yet. But if I am still lead minister in 2053, then please tell me to pass the baton on. <laughs> I might have to shout at that point. But we can pass the baton on. Because God is sovereign. And we can be fundamentally optimistic as we look to the future of the church. Again, you see here, as we saw last week, the dynamic of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And fourthly, this is the gospel that we live out. And we see a couple of examples in verses 15 to 18. Let me read those again. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus." Paul was very much a people person. He had a vast capacity for friendship. He had a generous heart. He invested in people. He loved people. And when you've known, when you've loved, when you've invested in others, the hurt is all the greater. When they become the source of discouragement, and particularly if they desert the faith. And that had become Paul's experience. Some had become ashamed of him and the message that he preached. Paul had been left in the lurch by fair-weather friends and his heart ached. And maybe, maybe you know something of that experience. When friends that you've known have deserted faith in Christ or at the very least have wandered from the path of the authentic biblical gospel. That makes our heart ache, doesn't it? I'm grieved as I, as I remember some that, that I was at university with, even people that I led alongside with, who 20 years later would no longer say 
that they walk with Jesus. It just makes my heart ache. But then, then the Lord brings along reminders to me of those that still are walking closely with the Lord today. And often, actually, those people are people who weren't prominent 20 years ago. But they have remained faithful and steadfast and have walked with Jesus surely, faithfully, steadfastly over the decades. They're people who had an attitude like Onesiphorus. Paul was in prison in Rome in a place that was difficult to find. In those days, people in prison, they were expected to provide their own food, so they relied on friends bringing them food. And Onesiphorus probably didn't know his way around the city. Paul's location wasn't advertised. He couldn't get out his phone and look up Paul on the Find My Friends app. But Onesiphorus was an example of bold faithfulness expressed in merciful, practical ways. Imagine the delight in Paul's eyes when he turned up, bringing material and spiritual refreshment, living out Christian mercy. Well, in these verses, we're presented with contrasting examples. We're urged, don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes, be like Onesiphorus. Now, I meant to check this beforehand, but I don't think we have any babies in the creche with this name yet. But he's a great example to us. Be like him. He gave aid to an imprisoned pastor at a time when the church was under fire. That was a courageous act of faith at a time when it was dangerous to be a Christian. So will we stand with the Christians and the pastors around the world and demonstrate this kind of merciful help? And if we're in the UK in the coming years, will we stand with the Christians who will face significant personal cost for following Jesus? Will we stand with those who lose their jobs because they hold to biblical ethical principles? Will we stand with those who receive hate on social media for following Jesus in their relationships? Will we stand with those who end up with a lower standing standard of living because they refuse to treat other people like goods to consume? What do you imagine it might cost you to follow Jesus and make him known in the coming years? In 2007, I was inducted as a minister in training at Cornerstone Church, and uh, in that service, our then senior minister, Peter Lewis, spoke in in the sermon. Some of you might have been there. Uh, He spoke about the way in which Christian ministers are viewed in this country, how it's changed dramatically. And Peter spoke of how in the 40 years, then it was 40 years, since he became a minister, How much had changed where once ministers were respected in society, now church ministers are sometimes disdained. 
And in 2007, Peter went on to say that in my lifetime and ministry, we could see Christian ministers imprisoned for holding to the truths of the Bible. And I have to say that at that time, I thought that unlikely. Now, I think it's much more possible. Even if not imprisoned, then having sanctions such as not being allowed to be charity trustees and so on if we don't agree to certain demands of the state. That's more than possible. Suffering for the gospel, light through the gospel, guarding of the gospel, living out the gospel. Well, we began by hearing some famous last words. Now, I don't know what the next 30 years will hold. I don't know what my last words will be. I don't know what your last words will be. But we do know the Lord's presence with us now and into the future. And on his deathbed, John Wesley, on his deathbed, spoke and repeated these final words. The best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Lord Jesus, you have destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Holy Spirit, please help us to hold on to this good news by passing it on. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace your love, your mercy, and your peace. Amen.